What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. Hi, Ina Chadwick. Yeah, what a story. Last Saturday of the month, February 26th. I always have to check. Ever since I've, you know, worked for myself and uh, didn't live from paycheck to paycheck, I forget the dates. But I will tell you when I did a very, very, a two-year job, uh, a, a website creative and copy for a rather large entertainment law firm. They used to say, I can trust Ina with anything, but never trust her with your calendar. And they did at first, and all of them had calendar entries for days that didn't exist. So if ever I tell you about a date, check it again, and I'll check it again. But it's Black History Month. Black History Month is a tough thing for a white Jewish girl from the Bronx to get involved in, not because I don't have black friends, but also because I've been in the media for a long time and we always had the best Christmas, Black History Month. And sometimes it begins to feel like tokenism for me. And I am very glad to be able to have put this show together without reaching out to my few black friends to have them share a story, what I have been able to do here. And I am so grateful that I've been able to reach out to my networks. And the first on our playlist is Susan Jacobson. Uh, Susan Jacobson is a writer and a performance art artist of the highest caliber. And during quarantine, she channeled her writer, actress, and found extraordinary women with memoirs. And she has begun to record and write those memoirs. The first one is Lillian Smith, a Southern white author in the 1900s. Stunning and so lauded as a black activist, a white Southern woman, that Martin Luther King had such respect for her. He wrote about her and so good an activist that uh, she had her house burned down in Georgia by those who objected to what she did. So it will be Susan Jacobson, Mistaken Identity. I was born and reared in a small, deep South town whose population was about equally Negro and white. There were nine of us who grew up freely in a rambling house of many rooms surrounded by a big lawn, backyard, gardens, fields, and a barn. It was the kind of home that gathers memories like dust, a place filled with laughter and play and pain and hurt and ghosts and games. We were given such advantages of schooling, music, and art. Mother was a wistful creature who loved beautiful things like lace and sunsets and flowers and took good care of her children. Father was a hard-headed, warm-hearted, high-spirited man born during the Civil War earning his living at 12, struggling through decades of reconstruction and post-reconstruction. He employed hundreds of colored and white laborers, paid them the prevailing low wages, worked them the prevailing long hours, built for them mill towns, Negro and white, built for each group of church, saw to it that religion was supplied free. He was pushing his nine children straight into the future. You have your heritage, he used to say. Some of it good, some not so good. And as far as I know, you had the usual number of grandmothers and grandfathers. Yes, there were slaves, too many of them in the family. But that was your grandfather's mistake, not yours. 
The past has been lived, it is gone. The future is yours. What are you gonna do with it? He asked this question often and one knew it was but an echo of a question he had spent his life trying to answer for himself. Against this backdrop, the drama of the South was played out one day in my life. A little white girl was found in the colored section of our town, living with a Negro family in a broken down shack. The family had moved in a few weeks before and little was known of them. One of the ladies in my mother's club while driving over to her washerwoman's, saw the child swinging on a gate. The shack, she said, was hardly more than a pigsty, and this white child was living with dirty and sick-looking colored folks. They must have kidnapped her, she told her friends. Genuinely shocked, the club women busied themselves in an attempt to do something where the child was very white indeed. The strange Negroes were subjected to grueling questioning and finally grew evasive and refused to talk at all. This only increased the suspicion of the whole group. The next day, the club women, escorted by the town marshal, took the child from her adoptive family despite their tears. She was brought to our home I do not know why my mother consented to this plan. Perhaps because she loved children and always showed concern for them. It was easy for one more to fit into our ample household and Janie was soon at home there. She roomed with me, sat next to me at the table. I found Bible verses for her to say at breakfast. She wore my clothes, played with my dolls, and followed me around from morning to night. She was dazed by her new comforts and by the interesting activities of this big, lively family. And I was as happily dazed, for her adoration was a new thing to me. And as time passed, a quick, childish, and deeply felt bond grew up between us. But a day came when a telephone message was received from a colored orphanage. There was a meeting at our home, many whispers. All afternoon, the ladies went in and out of our house talking to mother in tones too low for children to hear. As they passed us at play, they looked at Janie and quickly looked away again, though a few stopped and stared at her as if they could not tear their eyes from her face. When my father came home, mother closed her door against our young ears and talked a long time with him. I heard him laugh, heard mother say, but Papa, this is no laughing matter. And then they were back in the living room with us, and my mother was pale. My father was saying, well, work it out, Mame, as best you can. After all, now that you know, it is pretty simple. In a while, my mother called my sister and me into her bedroom and told us that in the morning, Janie would return to Colored Town. She said Janie was to have the dresses the ladies had given her and a few of my own and the toys we had shared with her. She asked if I would like to give Janie one of my dolls. She seemed hurried. She said, why not select it now? I brought in my dolls and chose one for Janie. And then I found it possible to say, why is she leaving? She likes us. She hardly knows them. She told me she had been with them only a month. Because Janie is a little colored girl. But she's white. We were mistaken. 
She's colored, but she looks. She is colored. Please don't argue. What does it mean, Mama? It means that she has to live in colored town with colored people. But why? She lived here three weeks and she doesn't belong to them. She told me so. She is a little colored girl. But you said yourself, she has nice manners. You said that. Yes, she is a nice child, but a colored child cannot live in our home. Why? You know, dear. Lillian, you have always known that white and colored people do not live together. Can she come to play? No. I don't understand, Mama. You're too young to understand. And don't ask me again, ever again, about this. Mother's voice was sharp. But her face was sad, and there was no certainty left there. She hurried out and busied herself in the kitchen, and I wandered through that room where I had been born, touching the old familiar things in it, looking at them, trying to find an answer. And then I went out to Janie, who was waiting knowing that things were happening that concerned her, but waiting until they were spoken aloud. I do not know how the words quite were said, but I told her she was to return in the morning to the little place where she had lived because she was colored and colored children could not live with white children. Are you white? She asked. I'm white and my sister is white. And you're colored and white and colored can't live together because my mother says so. Why? Janie whispered. Because they can't. But I knew, though I said it firmly, that something was wrong. I knew my father and mother, whom I passionately admired, had betrayed something which they held dear. And they could not help doing it. And I was shamed by their failure and frightened for I felt they were no longer as powerful as I had thought. There was something out there that was stronger than they, and I could not bear to believe it. I could not confess that my father, who always solved the family's dilemmas easily and with laughter, could not solve this. I knew that my mother, who was so good to children, did not believe in her heart that she was being good to this child. But I felt compelled to believe they were right. It was the only way my world could be held together. And slowly, it began to seep through me. I was white. She was colored. We must not be together. It was bad to be together. Though you ate with your nurse when you were little, it was bad to eat with any colored person after that. It was bad, just as other things were bad that your mother had told you. It was bad that she was to sleep in the room with me that night. It was bad. I was overcome with guilt, 
for three weeks. I had done things that white children were not supposed to do. And now I knew these things had been wrong. I went to the piano and began to play as I had always done when I was in trouble. I tried to play my next lesson and as I stumbled through it, the little girl came over and sat on the bench with me. Feeling lost, she crept closer and put her arms around me and I shrank away as if my body had been uncovered. I had not said a word. I did not say one. But she knew. And tears slowly rolled down her little white face. Many years later, I came to understand something was wrong with a world that tells you that love is good and people are important and then forces you to deny love and to humiliate people. I knew, though I would not for years confess it aloud, that in trying to shut the Negro race away from us, we have shut ourselves away from so many good, creative, honest, deeply human things in life. I began to understand slowly at first, but more clearly as the years passed, that the warped, distorted frame we have put around every Negro child from birth is around every white child also. Each is on a different side of the frame, but each is pinioned there. And I knew that what cruelly shapes and cripples the personality of one is as cruelly shaping and crippling the personality of the other. I began to see that though we may, as we acquire new knowledge, live through new experiences, examine old memories, gain the strength to tear the frame from us, we are stunted and warped and in our lifetime cannot grow straight again any more than can a tree put in a steel-like twisted frame when young, grow tall and straight when the frame is torn away at maturity. And as I sit here telling you this story, I can almost touch that little town. So close is the memory of it. There it lies, its main street lined with great oaks, a little white town rimmed with Negroes, making a deep shadow on the whiteness. There it lies, broken in two by one strange idea, minds broken, hearts broken, conscience torn from acts. A culture split in a thousand pieces, that is segregation. The year is 1970. I've just graduated from high school. After a great high school career in which at the graduation ceremony, I got to give a speech as the salutatorian. It's now the day after and I am celebrating with friends. I happened to see one of my classmates who was the valedictorian, a wonderful person who I've known for four years and we sit and chat and we chat and we continue to chat and she comes to my car and we sit there from 10 p.m. till 1 a.m. and we talk about everything. And I think to myself, I'm like, gosh, I've known her all this time and how wonderful she is, she's amazing. And we decide to start going out. So we go out all summer. She's going to go off to a prestigious university outside Philadelphia, and I'm going to wander out to the Midwest and go to a prestigious university there. But all summer we have a wonderful time, and my father is decidedly quiet over that particular summer. So as it's time to go, I 
see her the night before she leaves at a bowling alley and we're all happy and sad at the same time, but we're determined to stay together as a couple. And, and I venture out to the Midwest with my parents. I'm the first to go to college. I am far, far away from home. And just before my parents and sister leave, my father says, step out into the hallway. I want to tell you something. I step out and he looks at me and he says, get rid of the girlfriend by Christmas or you're not coming back. Now, my girlfriend, her mom is a white from Canada and her father is the head of child charities in New York City and he is very black. I knew my father was always super conservative, but I did not know he was so prejudiced as well and they venture out. I spend the next week trying to figure out not what to do because I know in my heart what I'm going to do, but how to tell her of this situation. So I write a six or seven page letter. I send it off to her and then I decide, nope, I have to tell her this in person. So I decide to hitchhike the 700 miles back to Philadelphia to tell her in person. And when I arrive there, I see she's walking out and she's got the letter in hand. So she already knows the lay of the land with regard to my father. I decide to absolutely not leave her and not get rid of her in any way, shape, or form, but I'll see what my father does. And it's a terrible semester for me. And I manage, even as the salutatorian of my class, to, in my five classes, score an A, a B, a C, a D, and an F. I go back at Christmas time. And now I've changed also. I haven't had my hair cut since June and I'm adopting a sort of different kind of a persona. And in essence, I've called my father's bluff because the embarrassment of having him leave the university, how would he explain it to his friends? What would he say? What would be the reason? And of course, if he did kick me out of school, then I'd be there to say, that's not the reason. Here's the real reason. And so my father decides not to talk to me. And except for cursory little comments here and there, we don't speak for about a year and a half while I go out with her. And I do all sorts of crazy things like hitchhike back and forth to Philadelphia many times, leaving on a Thursday night and returning on a Sunday, 700 miles each direction. But one day my father pulls me aside and he says, do you know what I could do I said, what are you talking about? He said, I could kill her. He said, I know where she lives. And you know I could do it. And the reason I know that he can do it is because in addition to being strong and tough and harsh at times, my father is an unbelievable hunter and fisherman. And I had fallen in love with the forest and my father and I would go to the deer woods. We would sight his gun. We would build tree stands. He bought me a rifle when I was 12 and I went out into the forest, but I had no joy in killing anything. I could shoot a squirrel or shoot a bird or shoot something, but I didn't fall in love with the way he did. And certainly I moved off from that position. And I knew that that moment when he said those words was the breaking point in our relationship. And I realized my father for the person he really was. And it, it is one of those relationships in which you can love a person and hate a person at the same time, because for him to even think of that, to be capable of thinking of that showed me not just his conservative streak, but his prejudice streak and his closed mindedness about people in general. Now we continued to go out. He continued not to speak to me. And I, I knew that he would never act on that, but I could never trust him or believe in him again, as I had prior to that, despite our differences. And as time wore on over the next year and a half, and I continued to be with her, and he continued to not speak to me, I realized that my life had changed. It had taken a turn that I had never really expected because 
although I had always loved him up to age 19, I certainly didn't uh, think he was a warm person who could ever really sit down and have a, a conversation with you. And eventually, she and I broke up. Our relationship took its normal course and almost exactly two years after we had begun going out and being together, we sat down and she had a talk and she said, I think it's time for us both to try, try to see other people and to be with other people. And she had met someone who she was attracted to as well. And I was heartbroken that summer. I believe that was the summer of my nervous breakdown, if I ever actually had one, because I couldn't believe the investment that I had made. I turned from my family to her, and now she was turning from me to someone else. And to this day, that was a watershed relationship in my life, having to do with how we see people and how they present to us. And she became a physician and a mother and a wife, and I became an educator and a father. And to this day, we occasionally pass cards. But the amazing part to me still in this story is that to this day, my father, who turns 96 in two months, is still sort of the watershed and earmark of how a person can live in the world and harbor such dark pieces. It's not about being conservative, it's being close-minded to human beings and love. It was 1991, and I had been transferred from my editorial position in West in uh, Fairfield County from a newspaper group, the Gannett Companies. They own billboards. They started USA Today. It was a pretty prestigious job. And they very rarely hired from outside. They'd had trouble in their newspapers in Fairfield County, uh, in, uh, Fair Press, with two editors leaving after going into some meetings, coming out, and then just packing up and leaving. So they decided to hire from outside. And they hired me, and it was a major struggle for me because I learned that the publisher of just this newspaper, not of Gannett, was a control freak, and uh, she would spy and do all sorts of things, but I managed to outlast her. I managed to document, and I managed to say to myself, What's the worst thing that could happen? I had learned that she, I knew she'd had a baby and she had made an arrangement uh, that she wouldn't miss a day's worth of work. And what she was really doing, the door was always closed and she wasn't in there. And she had like a hatchet man sitting in front of her office that said, you can't go in there. Anyway, I suspected this. I documented, I documented and when I called the publisher of Gannett Newspapers, which is all of Westchester and Rockland County, he didn't want to hear, you know, he wanted, he said, just do what you have to do. I couldn't fire the local publisher. So one day I got dressed in a red cape and I took my little book with all the documentation and I went down to headquarters at Gannett. And I walked up the stairs in a brazen moment without even asking. And he looked up from this deck. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm about to leave Fair Press and Gannett if somebody doesn't listen to me. And I gave him the little documented book. Anyway, she got fired. And I then was allowed to hire a cartoonist I wanted. And he later on went on to win a Pulitzer Prize in cartooning. He was 23 and I was paying $13 a cartoon in 1991. They closed my newspaper when I was on vacation. And I felt like I had lost my identity. 
But when the publisher called me in the Dominican Republic and said, Ina, you know, I've always liked you. I thought, oh, my God, he's breaking up with me. I just want to be friends. So <laughs> I left. He said, I am bringing you to White Plains. I don't have an editorial position for you, but we need something called a reader's editor, which is somewhere between an ombudsman and, uh, you know, uh, and the editorial board. And we will, you will, together, we will define this role. But Westchester is a very big area and had 13 newspapers in different communities. Bronxville had no African-Americans. You could be sure of that. And each place, New Rochelle, where I had lived, had a lot of African-Americans. Um, White Plains was just beginning to have a tremendous influx of Blacks. I don't like to use African-Americans because they could be Haitian. They should, could, and, I, and I always think it's such a misnomer. So I what was, became aware that one of my jobs was going to be to listen to members of community groups who got in touch with the editorial board and said, you are giving too much ink or pixels in photographs to this community which is opposed to our community. And there were warring factions, the right to lifers, the, it was right, uh, Roe versus Wade was already in, but things were rising up again. And one of the most conflicted uh, communities was in White Plains because what had happened was the Hasidim from Borough Heights or Williamsboro in Brooklyn were moving to the suburbs. And they had, were now, and in, the, and they were pushing out the black community. And one of the reasons I learned was that the, and I am gonna take a look at this if nobody minds, you can't see me taking a look at it that the Hasidim were designated a disadvantaged minority under Lyndon Johnson Great Society. And they became beneficiaries of federal community development funds and received over the years, lots of grants and Section 8 housing assistance and loans so that they could build houses. And when it expanded into Westchester, the Hasidim were encroaching on the African-American and Hispanic neighbors who also had the same grants. And in 1991, when all of the uprisings started in Crown Heights, I got telephone calls to Gannett Suburban Media, the White Plains reporter dispatch mostly, that the black community felt we were biased and unfair. I received the same phone calls from the Hasidic community and they had measured pixels and articles. And I went to the editorial board and I spoke to the reporters and truthfully, I didn't, it didn't appear to be that way. I mean, it seemed equal and I couldn't even figure out the real stuff. The first thing I did was I went to an AME, an Ameri African-American Methodist church, three Sundays in a row to take part in their services. The white girl here, I had the best time. I thought this is the best. I felt joyous and wonderful. And I came back, I knew enough about, I didn't know enough about Hasidim, I'm a Jew who has found Hasidim too pushy, too insulated, too frightening for me. So I called a meeting, which I would do with factioning groups to meet in the community room, very large, lovely space 
on uh, Westchester Avenue in Harrison, white, you know, which is essentially like White Plains. And when I would call those meetings, they would be at six o'clock. So the working people could come in and I would always order sandwiches from the cafeteria to be brought up, deli sandwiches, roast beef, this. So if anyone had low blood sugar, most of the times people were older because that's what made them get so involved. They had the time. So on this particular day, I was having the African-American community that had was feeling that church was being destroyed, their graveyards with suburban expansion, and the Hasidim who felt totally disadvantaged because they couldn't build what they needed to build and were just given the right to do so. So I brought them in at six o'clock and I, I actually remember I wore my, my little Ina be straight, <laughs> you know, Ina be have decorum. And I stood at a table and there were probably eight on one side, eight on the other, maybe more. And I, the sandwiches didn't arrive. And I never liked to start until this, you know, cellophane wrapped were broken into and people had a little coleslaw and a little fork and everybody, nobody was hungry. They were not as irritable. And it was 620 and they were not talking to each other, you know, and I was getting anxious. I said to them, all of them, I stood at the table and I said, I'm going to call the cafeteria, find out where the sandwiches are, because I really know we have a lot of ground to cover for me to hear in specifics, in incidents, in details, and for me to hear likewise from you people. So I called and the cafeteria said they had no one to bring the tray up. So I said to this group, I stood there in my Ina Chadwick Jewish girl does, you know, good deportment, Good deportment always got and is polite and courteous and has good manners. And I stood there and my my mother must have inhabited my soul at that moment because she was the, the arbiter of heirs. She had a lot of heirs. And I said, I'm going to go downstairs and I know I am the hostess. And my mother told me it was impolite to leave guests alone and leave, and leave the room, even to go to the kitchen. And I thought they would all say, well, you're not impolite. And we understand it's polite. Do you want to feed us? And one black man said, because your mother thought the blacks were stealing our silver. Now this, in my wildest dreams, I never thought that. I did not come from a family where it doesn't mean I was exposed to that much blackness. Although my father had told me about the back of the bus stuff because he was a very swarthy Jewish guy who was a labor organizer in Greensboro. And he told me how we would always have to go to the back of the bus. I never knew what that meant really, but here I was in Westchester County in 1991. And I hear a hostility coming from his experience, not mine. And I said, I'm going to insist that the cafeteria bring the sandwiches up because now we can begin. The Big Shot by Jim Gordon. A city street. It's 2 a.m. on a cold February morning. <laughs> hey, hey, mister, you okay? Yes. You, you fall or something? No. What are you doing here? I'm waiting for someone. You kidding me? No. Mister, it's two o'clock in the morning. I know what time it is. 
You a cop? <laughs> Do I look like a cop? How'd you get here? That that your car? Yeah. Why ain't you in it? I told you I'm waiting for someone. Be a lot warmer in the car, wouldn't it? I'd fall asleep. Be freezing to death. Stop this nonsense and give me the keys. I'll turn the heater on in your car and you, you're going to sit there nice and warm. I'm okay. Mr. Mr. Do you know this neighborhood? I know it. Well, then you know a guy wearing an expensive watch and driving an expensive car is going to attract attention. No trouble so far. No brother stupid enough to come out in this weather. <laughs> that, that don't sound too good. That factory up the street, American Chain and Cable, you, you work there? Yeah, I do, and I just finished a 12-hour shift. I'm tired, I'm cold, and I'm hungry. The, the building over there, that, that where you live? Oh, yeah, that's my, my fourth floor in a nice, warm apartment. You're Lewis Johnson. How'd you know my name? I work with your, your father at Chain and Cable. You work with my daddy? Same building you just came from. How about that? Lewis? Lewis, is that you? Yeah, Mom, it's me. What are you doing down there? Who's that man? Says he worked with Pa at the factory. Chain and Cable? Yeah. Hold on. I saw him at St. Paul's this morning. Ask if he was at the cemetery. It was me. Yeah, it was him, Ma. What's he doing in this neighborhood at 2 o'clock in the morning? Waiting for someone. Waiting for someone? It's right, he said. He drunk? No, Mom, he's sick. Well, I'll call an ambulance. No, no, no ambulance. But, Ma, hold off on that. I'll throw down a blanket. Who are you, mister? My name is Bryce. Carl Bryce. Your father ever mentioned me? No, no. Howard Johnson was the best machine worker chain and cable ever had. He knew more about machines than he won the building. Fix him blindfolded if he had to. You didn't come here to tell me my daddy was handy with a wrench. You tell you why he left? Time to move on with something like that. That's what he told you? It was a long time ago. He was fired. Fired? He was supposed to be made foreman. Instead, they fired him. Why'd they do that? They said he was stealing. No way. My said old man wouldn't money. steal nothing from nobody. Said he stole money. Who said? Someone he worked with. Yeah, well, people say things. It don't mean nothing. People lie. You're right, Lewis. People lie. I don't want to talk about this, okay? Too damn cold to be talking like that. You understand what I'm saying? I understand. Come here 2 o'clock in the morning talking this nonsense. Why are you doing this? I need to. Well, you do what you got to. I need to get warm. Have a nice night. <laughs> Damn, I should have worked overtime. Lewis, I'm throwing down a blanket. You want I should call the ambulance? <sighs> yeah, Ma, call that ambulance. I, I know this place. Yeah, right. You come here for vacation. Played baseball over there. Over where? There, across the street. Rush Park? Back then it was a city dump. We played between piles of burning garbage. No wonder you're coughing. A broomstick, tennis ball. Hm. Make it up as you go. Called us the Third Street Terrors. Third Street? You live on Third Street? Born there. How about that? What's the matter, Lewis? White people can't be poor. So, you do know this place? Uh, my mom came by here on her way to the Salvation Army. Your mom shopped at the South? Socks, a sweater. And if I was good, maybe a comic book or a toy. You come a long way, mister. Right now, I'd trade it all for the smell of burning garbage. How's that man, Lewis? 
You call that ambulance, Ma? It's on the way. What? Why were you at that cemetery? I bought a plot. Funny, when I was a kid, I, I worked there straightening tombstones. Soon I'll be under one. You stop that. You ain't gonna die. Stop talking like that. Dying doesn't bother me, Lewis. It's no one caring. No kids. No friends either. Not close ones anyway. Too busy running chain and cable. No way. You own chain and cable? Did. Sold it a while back. I be damned. How about that? Big shot, huh? Yeah. Big shot. You go to church, Lewis? Sometimes. I'm what you call Easter religious. How about you? <laughs> Too busy making money. Oh, no, now that's something worth praying for. That what you pray for, Lewis? Yeah, a better life. You need money for that, right? Sometimes it's not enough. Damn good place to start. Here. Take this envelope to your mother. Give it to Bertha. Tell her to take it to a lawyer. He'll, he'll know what to do. What, what's in it? <laughs> Lewis, get that blanket and cover that man. I, I, I'll be right back, Mr. Bryce. L Lewis. Yeah? Wasn't your dad who stole the money? You know who did? Yeah. Was it you, mister? Was it you took the money? They made me a foreman. That answer your question? My dad know you took it? He knew. Why didn't he say something? I guess he didn't want to be a big shot. <laughs> you, you hold, hold on there, Mr. Bryant. Hold on. I'll go get that blanket. Lewis. Yeah? Tell Bertha uh, I'm sorry. Where the hell is that ambulance? The blanket's on top of the hedge. Get it and put it around that man before he catches his death, you hear? That a siren, Ma? Yeah, about time, too. Hear that, Mr. Bryce? That's the ambulance. Let me put this blanket around your shoulder. Keep you warm until I get here. They'll take good care of you. You're going to be okay. Look, look, what you did, it, it was a long time ago. My dad was a forgiving man. Let's leave it at that, okay? When you're better, we're going to talk some more, okay, Mr. Bryce? Mr. Bryce? Damn. Damn. Lewis? Damn. Well, what's the matter, Lewis? Lewis, that man. He okay? He's dead, Ma. He's gone. Oh, sweet Jesus. W who was he? You tell you who he was? His name was Bryce. Carl Bryce. Why'd he come here? To die, Ma. He came home to die. Home? He used to live around here? He never left. Well, after mistaken identity, delivered beautifully by Susan Jacobson, we had Bill Bosch and the Heart of Darkness and myself, gathering an unfamiliar community together. And as mentioned, the big shot. Uh, one of the players, or two, three of the players, uh, were, are actors. Uh, Vanessa Dawn, um, or I'm not sure if it's Dawn Vanessa, but uh, really good, look her up. Dawn Vanessa Brown, and um, directed by Patsy 
uh, Moss, not easy to direct on the air. Jim Gordon wrote the play, but he also played Lewis as he was the understudy when the actual Lewis, a black man, um, had to uh, had to leave at the last minute. And uh, Larry Greeley as Carl. That about ends it for what a story this month. Deeply, for me, moving stories, poignant, relevant. Tune in next month for what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. You have to have a story. You have to entertain us after all. Draw a situation that we can comprehend. So show us where's the glory. And who's the one who gets to take a fall? Is there a confrontation? What happens in the end? We'll be the cue, the question, and you're the A. And when this is through, let's hope the only thing there is to say. What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. You have to tell a tale. You have to fill the stage with clues, with threads and motivations. The stitches of a plot draw a world to scale. With boulevards and avenues, with flesh and blood creations. Some beautiful, some not. And give us a girl aglow with love's true flame. Give us a world aboard a love affair, and we'll exclaim. What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. Thugs and slugs and assassins' lairs, the dark perversions of billionaires, a frantic tumble of loose and lush affairs. Brilliant people and brilliant scenes are little more than a slide of dreams without a story to magnify their ends and means. A cavalcade of creatures Exposed to vagaries and whims Our everyday inventions Of the storyteller's art If players are the features And their agendas are the limbs Then tucked in those dimensions The story is the heart These are the tools You get to manipulate These are the jewels The fools you would-be gods Need to create what a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story.